Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expanse of Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you all for joining me today. I'm your co-host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi from Princeton University. I am Kelvin Eng from Yale University. I am Tamara Fernando. I'm a postdoc at the Institute for Historical Research and an incoming assistant professor at SUNY Stony Brook in New York. Welcome, everyone. Uh, today, we are here to talk to Professor Michael Laffin, the author of the newly published book, Under Empire, Muslim Lives and Loyalties Across the Indian Ocean World, from 1775 to 1945, published by Columbia University Press. Michael Laffin is a professor of history and Paolo Cho Chair in International and Regional Studies at Princeton University. He's the author of Islamic Nationhood and Colonial Indonesia, published in 2003, and The Makings of Indonesian Islam, published in 2011, as well as the editor of Belonging Across the Bay of Bengal, published in 2017, among others. By discussing under empire, we will learn about a tapestry of historical actors and empires and ideologies across the Indian Ocean, starting with an imam banished from eastern Indonesia to the Cape of Good Hope in 1780 to build a new Muslim community with a mix of uh, fellow exiles, enslaved people, and even the men tasked with supervising his uh, detention. To 19th century colonial chronicles, uh, chronicles who invented the legend of the loyal Malay warrior, whose anger, uh, as they say, can be tamed through the mildness of British rule. And the Tunisian-born teacher who arrived in Java from Istanbul in the early 20th century becomes an enterprising Arabic-language journalist caught between competing nationalisms. Telling these stories and many more, Michael Laffin offers a sweeping exploration of two centuries of interactions among Muslim subjects of empires and future nation states around the Indian Ocean world. Under empire traces interlinked lives and journeys examining engagements with Western Islamic and Pan-Asian imperial formations to consider the possibilities for Muslims in an imperial age. It ranges from the dying era of the trading companies in the late 18th century through the period of Dutch and British colonial rule up to the rise of nationalist and cosmopolitan movements for social reform in the 19th and the 20th centuries. Laffin emphasizes how Indian Ocean Muslims by turn asserted loyalty to colonial states in pursuit of a measure of religious freedom or look to the Ottoman Empire or Egypt in search of spiritual unity. Bringing the history of Southeast Asian Islam to African and South Asian shores, Under Empire is an expansive and inventive account of Muslim communal belonging on the world stage. 
Welcome, Professor Laffin, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World. And thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you very much, Ahmed. It's nice to speak to you again. Great. Uh, can you start us off by saying a few words about yourself? That is, where did you grow up? Where you went to school? How you became interested in your field of study? And if you would like to share any influential mentors you had? Um, yeah, well, I, I grew up in Canberra, uh, in Australia, and uh, I was lucky enough to have um, the opportunity to study Indonesian uh, during my high school years. Uh, I had a teacher, uh, Ibu Albina, who'd probably be shocked to know about what I do today, uh, given her view of me was that I was always a very naughty boy. Um, she, she taught me Indonesian and I, I always enjoyed Indonesian at school, but I didn't think it was going to be something that <clears throat> pointed me towards my future in any way. Um, although I did enjoy um, a, a brief youth exchange uh, when I stayed with a family in, in Bundle um, in 1986. Uh, but I had always thought that I was going to do something technical, engineering, um, maybe join the Defence Forces. And so uh, it only took one year of engineering for me to learn that that was not going to be for me. And uh, so I returned to Canberra, back to my hometown from Sydney, and uh, enrolled in Indonesian at the Australian National University. And then after a couple of years, I decided to try uh, Arabic and uh, I really enjoyed that a lot. And I, I suppose just things naturally went from there. I was, I was eager to, to learn what I could of, of Arabic and, and more Indonesian and just to understand a little bit better, you know, the, the influence of uh, uh, Islam, I guess, on, on Indonesian history. Although, to be honest, my initial forays into this, uh, you know, after undergrad and getting a job in a in a library at the the Menzies Library at the ANU, where I really met one of uh, my first great mentors was uh, George Miller, my my boss, uh, now retired in Canberra, who recommend you know suggested that I go on to do a PhD and uh, uh, help me apply to the University of Sydney, where I was uh, able to get get a place uh, in the program there and. Uh, Although when I say program, it's, it's very different in Australia. It's more like the British system uh, compared to America in that you you sort of propose a topic and then you're left to go and try and do what you can. And uh, originally I thought I would write a dissertation about uh, the influence or perhaps the journeys of uh, Christian Snohokronia, uh, a Dutch Orientalist. But then I realised as I was, when I did finally get to Leiden and and look in his files that uh, the far more interesting story was of the people he was supposed to uh, uh, befriend and uh, monitor and uh, give advice on to the Dutch colonial government. And, and I suppose that's that ended up becoming my dissertation, which became my first book. And uh, by this point, you know, all dreams of engineering and uh, the Defence Force and things like that were long behind me. And I was lucky enough to get a, a postdoc uh, in the Netherlands for the next three years, where I was able to you know, make, turn the dissertation into a book and uh, start to think more widely again um, before accidentally getting a job um, at Princeton. I, I sort of feel like it's been a series of, of happy accidents. Um, but throughout that time, I have had some important personal mentors. And um, looking back now, I think one, one was uh, Professor Tony Johns, uh, who I was lucky enough to just see again last month when I was back in Canberra for his 94th birthday. And uh, he um, 
was always an exceptionally open uh, professor. I didn't think I would follow in his footsteps at all. I mean, indeed, I haven't. He's, he's much more interested in the history of Quranic exegesis and uh, um, sort of deep spiritual connections between Indonesians and their, and their faith. Uh, I suppose I'm more a nuts and bolts historian. Um, and yeah, so Tony was always very generous to me, even though I wasn't actually his PhD student, we would regularly meet for coffee. And, and another person that comes to mind is uh, the late Ian Proudfoot, uh, very quiet, considered scholar of, uh, of Malay and um, Malay print culture, um, and just an incredibly uh, generous and uh, self-effacing uh, individual. Well, thank you for switching from engineering to history. We are all <laughs> grateful for that. And uh, thank you for sharing uh, your journey. Um, now let's move to uh, talking about your books. You have published several books and edited volumes, among which The Makings of Indonesian Islam, which you've mentioned Orientalism and the narration of a Sufi past, uh, which is also a podcast uh, you can find on the New Books uh, Network. Um, you've also published Islamic Nationhood and Colonial Indonesia, The Ummah Below the Winds, uh, and the edited volume Belonging Across the Bay of Bengal. How would you situate uh, Under Empire, your latest book, in your overall intellectual trajectory? Oh, this is really tough, Um to think of it as an intellectual trajectory, you know, it, it, as though one thing naturally emerges from the other. Uh, I think I have a bit, I still have a problem of sort of uh, thesisitis where, you know, I want to include or talk about everything I, I sort of touch and, and grab. And it's, it's been an impulse that's slowed me down um, as I've gone on. Um, in a way, I was lucky with the first book the dissertation, you know, not getting a lot of funding in Australia and only having a limited amount of time in the archives meant that I could only grab so much and and write it all down. Um, and then coming to Princeton, I had the luxury of more time for the for the second book. Um, but I think that I I pitched myself at a topic that was perhaps uh, too obscure for most people. I know that there's it's on the the New Books Network, or it was. Um, but it, it, I think in trying to disentangle a story or I wasn't really putting a new one up, you know, you know, why is it that, uh, uh, Indonesian Muslims seem to have this particular idea about themselves. And, uh, in a way I missed a moment whereby, um, I was trying to think about in the second book, um, what is it that the, the makings of Indonesian Islam were? That is, you know, what are the ingredients that were, set in place or by scholarly consensus before, you know, Indonesian independence. Um, I mean, I, people have rightly critiqued the book for, for not engaging enough with what uh, post-colonial Indonesians uh, said about themselves. But my point was to look at the colonial antecedents of this thing that now has taken a life of its own uh, in terms of uh, Islam Nusantara. People have chosen uh, in Indonesia, they chose a different name uh, for this thing that they want to characterize as their own style of Islam. Uh, and it's also, I believe, the title they're going to give to the new capital, uh, which has been relocated uh, to Borneo. But this latest book, I, I suppose, was as much as the first book was my attempt to try and understand the mechanisms of movement between uh, what is now Indonesia and, and the Middle East and the intellectual uh, connections between people thinking about 
patriotism and nationalism in an Arabic-speaking context and how that might translate into another linguistic register. I think this latest book was me trying to move away from the Dutch Empire, which had sort of concerned me mainly, and, and think about the engagements of uh, people of Southeast Asian origin with uh, the British Empire, which after all became uh, effectively the most important, you know, the hegemon of the Indian Ocean world uh, in the 19th century, despite some people sort of denying that it was ever in an intentional uh, situation. It was, it was clear um, by 1900, you know, who, whose ships uh, were going to be carrying everything and everyone, or at least where the money would be going ultimately. Um, so I thought, you know, I was interested in looking at that transition from uh, Dutch uh, context, particularly under what was the Dutch East India Company rule, uh, which had outposts in, in uh, what is now Sri Lanka and uh, South Africa, um, and trying to, I guess I've always been interested in connecting these histories, um, even if uh, in looking at them, one is increasingly conscious of how disconnected they became, uh, where, whereas the Dutch East India Company connected, uh, you know, Indonesia with Sri Lanka and uh, the Cape, one finds under the British, you know, a reorientation uh, of those places also, reorientations northward because people, you know, Muslims in, at the Cape and Muslims in Lanka also had visions of their own, of, of their connection to the Holy Lands and, and fading memories, I suppose, of, of where home might have been because we also have to remember that people would, would be looking back uh, to Indonesia but not, seeing, not having seen Indonesia uh, at the time of the departure of their grandparents or their great-grandparents. So, yeah, I guess it was just I had a sense that these places were connected and I wanted to sort of explore um, instances of connection that involved uh, Southeast Asian Muslims, but not necessarily all of the, the stories that I wanted to put together. And I just had a sense of them coming together. Um, not, not all of those stories were necessarily driven by Southeast Asian actors. Sometimes my source bases uh, forced me to think about uh, some unusual uh, British actors or actors for the British Empire or to think about Ottoman actors uh, and how they might have viewed uh, these same people. So, yeah, it, it's sort of um, yeah hard to say it's a trajectory, but I, I think as with the second book, same, same with this, I, I consider this my third book, uh, it's something that slowly wrote itself, and even even the very title was for me uh, somewhat unclear until till the last minute. Mm -hmm. And definitely, the the scale and the scope of this book is much uh, wider than your previous two books. And uh, Under Empire is based on an impressive range of uh, public and private archives in different languages. Uh, in this book, he was skillfully performed detective work and tracing names that kept changing in different archives. And when I say changing, I don't mean pronunciations of Dutch or others, completely changing, which is impressive that you found them. Uh, finding actors that appear and disappear in the records across the ocean. And also you undo historiographies that, esta that establish popular narratives of the past. Uh, so can you share with us some highlights uh, from your research experience in writing uh, Under Empire? What was it like to trace these uh, fleeting uh, phantoms in the archives 
navigating the, the public and the private archives, and then um, really pushing back against uh, a long-established uh, historiography about this part of the world. Well, I'm not so sure about pushing back or not intentionally pushing back too much, um, and unless it's a view of, you know, unified resistance or, um, uh, you know, constant connection between places. I suppose I was, I was more interested in the, the disconnections um, and, and then bringing that sort of fractured story together. Uh, but in terms of uh, archives and, and private sources, I really have to say that I I stood on the shoulders of lots of other people in many cases, uh, particularly in Cape Town. Um, although I did go um, to the Western Cape's archives and I was generously assisted uh, by, by friends at the Cape um, who showed me parts of their private collections. Um, quite a lot was, has been done as well by uh, others. Uh, Shafiq Morton has written his own biography of, of Tuanguru, uh, that is the the, the focus of my first chapter. Uh, and we we very much came to agreement, if you like, about the the life of Tuanguru. Uh, I had an inkling, for example, that he had uh, not been out on Robben Island for quite as long as his descendants uh, had thought. Uh, and that, in fact, was proved by private documents that uh, Shafiq was able to uh, bring into the public eye through his connection with another uh, family descendant. Uh, but in terms of finding things uh, myself, I mean, I was, I don't know about, there, there was one document I remember being uh, quite interested in, you know, it was a, a petition that was uh, sent from Gaul uh, in Sri Lanka uh, to the uh, Egyptian uh, Khadiv, or it wasn't, yet the Khadiv, but naming him at the time as the protector of Muslims uh, for the Indian Ocean, or if not if not the world, and asking uh, that the Muhammad Ali Pasha would send uh, fresh scholars to assist uh, the benighted Muslims of Lanka. But of course, even this letter, uh, as I read it, I realised, you know, contextually, it was not talking about all Muslims. It was largely focused on the the affairs of Tamil-speaking Muslims uh, in southern Lankan uh, port. And uh, also the very language of the petition I found quite interesting in, in that it was uh, written in English uh, and it was conveyed, and conveyed by uh, a returning British official uh, to Cairo where I don't believe it ever actually uh, made it before the, uh, the the eyes of Muhammad Ali himself. Um, I remember that thinking that was very interesting. Uh, I also very much enjoyed tracing the story of someone who didn't really figure in the book because he's too early, and this is uh, Radan Mascareta, who has been the focus of some scholarship uh, by others. Uh, Ronit Ritchie um, has recently drawn more attention to him, but uh, I was particularly interested in linking um, the story of this exile from Java to the Cape uh, with his son or his adoptive son, his African-born son, Wirakusuma, uh, and a letter that he wrote from Lanka, which very much lines up with uh, the experience of many of the, the elite exiles uh, who were dispatched to, to that island rather than, than Cape Town, and in which he refers to his, his late father in, in Dutch, but writing in Arabic script as uh, Prince van der Kapp, that is the Prince of the Cape, which is not a, 
an appellation that I'd found anywhere else uh, to refer to him. And I suppose lastly too, it, it was in some cases I was looking at people who I should have been looking at all along. Um, the story of uh, um, Hashmi al-Makki, a Tunisian printer. Um, you know, I, I had known uh, two of his uh, now late sons uh, in, in both Jakarta and, and the Netherlands. Um, incredibly warm uh, family with really interesting history, but uh, Hashemi doesn't quite fit in a lot of narratives because he doesn't come from the Hadramaut in modern Yemen, so he doesn't fit that sort of standard valorized narrative of the the southern Arabian Arab who, who comes to Southeast Asia as a, a religious missionary. Rather, he's someone who worked as a as a printer and he came from Tunis and uh, um, spoke French as well. And uh, lastly, I, I think seizing on, on uh, Mas Mansour, a rather problematic character actually, and um, from East Java, travelled to the Middle East, studied, claimed he went to Cairo and uh, even went further than that. Uh, and then during the Japanese occupation emerged as one of the, uh, the most obvious voices uh, for Japanese propaganda, but trying to wed uh, the Islamic cause to the Japanese one, but in in terms of nationalism and, and making one of the first calls for jihad on behalf of jihad Japan. And of course, we have to um, weigh up, you know, just how much choice people had, but it did seem like a, a rather willing one that was, was made uh, by him. So yeah, they're, they're probably the, the highlights, I suppose, or some of the things that occur to me now as we're, as we're talking about, you know, when I was writing the book. And it really shows in the book, uh, your conversations, your engagements, your observations, you're not just engaging with the Imperial archives, but also you're, you're drawing on your own field work uh, in all of these sites. And if I may follow up, uh, what was the challenge in writing such a book, uh, which covers uh, a broad geography over so many years while remaining grounded in archival detail. And I'm asking this as a, somebody who's working on my dissertation, I find it really challenging to do such work. So can you share with us, how did you accomplish this? Well, whether I've accomplished it or not, um, I think travel was key and just seeing the places. Uh, I, and it's taken me quite a long time. It's taken several visits to the Cape uh, where I have to say I'm sort of a, a nervous interviewer of people. Um, I'd rather listen without taking extensive notes. Uh, and it's often the case that I've, I've been to a place and then gone back and then I realised, you know, the questions that I should have asked. So it's been a long sort of history of frustration in a way. Uh, there are places that I feel I know better than others. Uh, when it comes to Lanka, it's, it's definitely much more opaque to me. Um, and I've had to rely very heavily um, on, well, I'm, I'm really indebted to people like Ronit who have collected so many manuscripts and then or photographed them and made them available uh, through um, the British Library website through the Endangered Archives program. Um, when it comes to Indonesia, this was a place that feels a little bit more comfortable for me, and yet um, the subject of you know my researches in Indonesia or the focus again I flipped it and looked at the people who were the outsiders in a way and and looking at the the Arabic press uh, in uh, Indonesia and uh, ironically you know a lot of a lot of that stuff is really in the Netherlands or 
you know, copies, copies microfilms and scans uh, or things in loose folders from my previous work um, on Snooker Gronia. Not my folders, but his um, just uh, guided me towards the documents. But again, it was a long process of serendipity and um, I had a sense of how things might fit together as a story. But again, it's, it's, it's very hard to describe a clear method other than, you know, going looking and trying to get a feel for a place or, or trying to imagine places as they were um, before they became what they are today. So picking up on that same theme of method, um, going and looking, we wanted to invite you to say a little bit more about, I guess one way to frame the question is as a question of disciplines, um, maybe more a sort of more open way to frame that is the kinds of materials that we read. Um, to be specific, we wanted to invite you to say a little bit about, say, literary studies. So I think for me, reading the book, one thing that's really striking is the whole array of different genres of texts you draw on. As you mentioned, moving from manuscript to press or printed material, you know, the, the range of sort of material available to the historian in this case really does range from pietistic works, juridic, juridical manuscripts, petitions, newspapers, and so on. So maybe just a, uh, an invitation to talk a little bit about genre or the types of materials historians might read and how, how you approach this. Ah, oh, well... I always like I like to think that I wasn't trained as a historian um, because I wasn't technically uh, at the ANU. My undergraduate degree was just in languages and Asian studies, it was sort of a, a grab bag of things. So um, I suppose I've taken that with me. It's just I, I feel unconstrained, uh, and if I see something that looks, if I can try and bring anything into dialogue with something else, um, I'll I'll do it. Uh, in many cases, the choice of sources was dictated by just what's available. Um, I could, I'll talk a bit later perhaps about my work on the Cocos Islands where the, the range of sources is uh, even smaller um, and yet a lot can still be said. But when it, I'm not working on all these places in an even manner, I would say, uh, but I am trying to tell different stories in different places. So for Cape Town... Um, in part, I was drawn to what remains in the public sphere uh, to talk about the lives, how people remember people now seen as saints. Uh, but when I was in the in the the, the archives, uh, in the Western Cape archives, it uh, I was sometimes looking at documentation that's quite um, well straightforward. It, it just seems to be lists, names of people who had been condemned to one place or another. But these, as I was reading them, I, I found them uh, increasingly haphazard and unreliable, often at the, the whim of the, the very bored uh, officer who was stuck out on Robben Island, you know, sometimes affirming that people were on the island when perhaps they weren't. Um, also, I, I had a, a slight uh, dose of frustration but and, and pleasure at the same time when I had spent some weeks transcribing some uh, lists of convicts on the island when someone asked me, you know, why didn't you just use all the transcriptions that are already available and were on a website? And uh, then when I checked them, I found that there were discrepancies between 
what was on the transcription and what I had seen myself. And, and uh, so I was sort of glad I'd done the, the hard yards there. But no, in terms of materials, um, I just tend to gravitate to whatever I can find, um, you know, be it personal accounts, which are very rare, uh, as are private letters uh, between people. Again, extremely unusual to find uh, letters in Jawi that are not necessarily, that have not been preserved because they're letters to officials or, or royal figures. And so there are a few of these at the Cape, which, as I mentioned, Shafiq Morton um, first sort of brought out in, into the public eye. Uh, but I, I think also in it's only after finishing that I realised that I should have engaged with more literary studies and perhaps with the work that's been done in new imperial history. Um, certainly I, I had admired the work of people like Isabel Hoffmeyer or Claire, Claire Anderson, but um, I read some something by Antoinette Burton the other day that just made me think, you know, I needed... I need to go back again with with fresh eyes and uh, uh, try and explore a li- little bit more of uh, the domestic and the and the personal wherever I can find it. But but I think in a way I was already heading in that direction. I'm, whilst it's it's easy to sort of construct you know official narratives to decide you know well, when when battles occurred, when people were moved, when people were freed, uh, etc. Uh, it's for the historian, I think it's always more exciting uh, or more meaningful to find uh, the reflections of the the people themselves on on those events. You know, whether it's um, the reaction of Twanguru to the news of the death of a daughter back in in Batavia, or the or the joy or the worry that's expressed that you know letters he had been writing to friends back in Indonesia may not have been received. I don't know if that's the answer you're after, but that's that's probably where I am with that at the moment. I, I I think it's definitely the answer we're after and an inspiring one. I it makes me think also listening to you that something of the diversity of lives that are lived. I think you 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 mentioned Claire Anderson, but the notion of sort of accessing subaltern lives across the Indian Ocean it reflects in the diversity of sources you read and if one was to read a specific set of sources then the full account of that would be lost i think if i could push you just a little bit more on um sources we were all curious about illustration um both let's say an ethnographic illustration of um dress in the cape and then some really beautiful examples of sort of studio portraiture and photography. Is there a role for the visual that you're thinking through here? Uh, I'm always captivated by the visual. Um, I suppose not being trained in art history, I'm perhaps not as uh, careful as I I might be about, you know, thinking through all the, the meanings of the image. I mean, even the very image I chose for the cover uh, is one that really struck me at the Rupert Museum um by by stan uh, a picture which she just called arab priest uh it was a painting uh, from i think 1933 and yet because i wasn't sure that that image would even be used i hadn't uh done that bit more of research to find out well who was this arab priest who is who is staring back at us from the cover of the book now um uh, you know representing in a way 
the subaltern subaltern experiences that I, I want to speak about. Although I also found that that painting particularly compelling in that it's it's not a subaltern gaze; it's a gaze of authority. It's in a gaze of uh, I think there's there's an assured sense of self there, and I think that's really important too to to bring out. Um, in terms of some of the images, uh, the one you refer to of the sort of the couple at the Cape is of uh, a prominent returned uh, pilgrim and his wife, um, and it was it's one that's been trotted out quite often. Though I thought it was important to show both of them. Um, often they just show Carl um, in the absence of his wife uh, in in various books, uh, and you learn as much from seeing her in terms of what what was common dress uh, at the Cape at the time, or dress for people who were assuredly uh, climbing in the ranks, if you like, of of Capetonian society uh, in the 19th century. And similarly, I was really struck by the the photograph of Jonas Saldin, um, which I ended up using there, where, again, you have the the, the vision, the the person looking back at you. I think it's it's really important. Um, But... There were many other images I would have liked to include it, but I, I sort of had to limit myself to a, a certain number uh, for fear of uh, offending the the publishing gods. So, you know, I think I could almost just try and grab as many pictures as I could and, and make something of a coffee table book of things. But uh, yeah, I've always been very drawn to uh, images, uh, not just of people too, but of, of places, and I, I would have loved to have included uh, many more images of just the. The environs of of Colombo or Cape Town or or even Batavia, if I'd been able. Oh, and especially in the Moluccas, um, you know, the birthplace of of uh, Tuanguru. Um, it's an incredibly spectacular place, and yet there are very few sketches that I could find from his actual lifetime. And and, and for me, it was important too to include uh, images from the lives of the people them, themselves, rather than. Um, using you know later later images or earlier ones i wanted to try and at least uh, stay true to that i i don't know if you're familiar with the uh, ottoman hedge trail website which visualizes and, and makes hedge interactive for students i think your book is a good candidate for such a project to be honest because it, it beautifully connects all of this geography and you can you know beautifully visualize it and make it an interactive uh, educational source maybe for students. Just a suggestion. Well, uh, I think uh, Nkulo has done quite a lot of uh, similar stuff too for visualizing, uh, for example, Angkor. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. I, although I, I must admit I'm somewhat tech-averse for, <laughs> to, to throw these things up on, up on the internet. Making a web page is about the limit for me these days. All right. Uh, beside the sources, uh, in the book, I've noticed that you move back and forth between the past and the present, um, and you engage historical memory uh, uh, of, of the different communities you're talking about. So how do you assess this historical memory uh, uh, vis-a-vis the scholarship on, on Muslim mobility networks, uh, knowledge production and activism in the context of the different empires around the Indian Ocean? And, and how does your book contribute to it? Uh, that's a very big question. Can we break it up a little bit? Uh, oh, right. How do I start with the memory part? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess I'm conscious when looking at uh, 
more popular histories, uh, there's always an assertion of there seems to be a need uh, for uh, a valorized past, and I don't necessarily want to offer that. Um, the idea that people were always constantly resisting is is also a, an argument. It's it's a story I perhaps resist myself, uh, particularly the Cape. I mean, the Cape has such a problematic past. Most of the people who were sent there were, of course, sent there against their will, um, whether they were exiles or enslaved. And there's a desire to claim the narrative of, of having been oppressed but having fought against it. Uh, and at the same time, there, there seems to be an impulse among people to... Uh, to find ancestors who were were not among the enslaved, ancestors who were uh, royal exiles or scholarly exiles, and of course the the vision of the, the difference between the scholar and the the regal figure is is one that's arbitrary sometimes. You know that that people, many of the ulama had been uh, brought into the families of the of the royal elite in in places like the Moluccas. So in, indeed. Um, I suppose I, I have disagreements with another scholar of of uh, Capetonian Islam at the Cape who uh, who feels I'm um, you know belittling the experience of Twanguru or not sort of stressing uh, his resistance. But I think it's it's important to recognise the practicalities of of many of these circumstances uh, where people um, were not as free as they wanted to be and in some cases had to manifest or demonstrate uh, loyalty to a colonial regime. Um, in some cases, this seemed easier where that regime replaced the previous one that had been responsible for their suffering. Uh, so the British were able to make use of or manufacture a certain degree of, of loyalty among the people they called Malay at the Cape um, because they had... Uh, ostensibly freed them from the Dutch, although, of course, they imposed their own system of rule and, and restriction over them. But, yeah, I, I think I also want to speak against this this idea of everything being fine and ironic. Um, I, I wanted to sort of make a, a mess of that a little bit. But the other story I wanted to... Um, push in a way, and, and I suppose taking Jamil Aydin's argument a little bit further was the idea that um, when the Ottomans were propagating the idea in the, or more actively propagating the idea in the 19th century, I think in response to requests from the Indian Ocean Arena that that they were uh, able in some way to act as um, spiritual authorities to Muslims in the Indian Ocean world, um, that this was by no means... Uh, raged or ranged against British authority. It wasn't seen as something that would necessarily uh, detach Muslims from their um, positions under the under the British Empire. So it was this idea of complementary imperial uh, ideas, you know, one, the empire that provides security after a fashion and restriction, but also there's the empire that would uh, uh, protect their spiritual interests and in dialogue with, with the British. Uh, more on the scholarship, uh, as, a, as a professor of history at Princeton, um, who advised and still advising many students who worked on the Indian Ocean history, where do you think the field is going or ought to go? Oh, <laughs> I hesitate to say where a field should go. 
I think it's it it should go where where people find the stories that are compelling and and uh, I'd leave it at that. I um, I don't think there's any anything out there I particularly want to critique at present. And uh, no, I I just like to to see more people uh, digging away at uh, connections between places, but perhaps it's these lateral connections I'd like to see brought out more, um, you know, connections, the sorts of things that you're doing, Ahmed, you know, um, and and using languages that certainly I don't have uh, control over or, you know, an an awareness of. So, um, yeah, I'd I'd just like to see more people get in and and enrich, enrich the story for everyone. This then is a question that leaves the Indian Ocean, but is lightly and playfully asked. um, If this is a history of the Malays, and I know the book works to complicate and undo and sort of give us a history of that term, are there other diasporic narratives across space doing this kind of transnational lateral work that you just mentioned that served as inspiration or counterpoint, say, certain kinds of histories of, say, um, Jewish histories written across the Mediterranean, for example. Right. Yeah, no, it, it's funny. I, diaspora is always a term, or diasporic history is something that um, I perhaps steered away from uh, in that it, it felt, it's always felt like that this was, some, some people might talk about a Malay diaspora and, and it's had its political usages um, and confusions uh, in the apartheid era too, you know, when um, the Malay community of Cape Town was offered uh, assistance by uh, the new state of Malaysia. But, um, you know, the, the most of the ancestors of the Malays of the Cape had no connection whatsoever with Malaysia. It was rather with, you know, Eastern Indonesia. And I think for me, the diasporic story was always... Yeah, it, it, I suppose I thought of other diasporas as having clearer single origins and a clearer sense of of home for people dispatched everywhere. Although, of course, if we're going to talk about an African diaspora and an Indian diaspora, they're equally diverse. But I, I think when it comes to the story of, you know, Southeast Asians elsewhere in the world, it, it's uh, far too complicated. You know, you go back, you're reaching back to something that it's had not really formed or was just a, a family of, of interrelated societies. I suppose it, it's why I found the idea of the Caribbean perhaps the most analogous. You know, there's a sense of what the Caribbean is in general, but if you go from island to island, from place to place, each one has its own very clear identity, uh, you know, as Stuart Hall uh, once wrote about. And I think if you, it's the same for what is now Indonesia, go from place to place you know there's a there are very clear differences even though people recognize that they have this this family resemblance so yeah it's it's a little bit hard to draw on another diasporic narrative or or set of diasporas i I think uh it's also struck me how infrequently uh people evoke um whether in in lanka or indonesia they they talk about they, they don't use the word diaspora, not that I'd noticed so much. But sometimes people have invoked this idea of a Malay world more recently. And yet 
as I wanted to point out in this book, it's it's such a problematic uh, concept, you know, t- terming uh, people Malays, you know, making Madaris mercenaries become, you know, who under the Dutch might have been viewed as more like Javanese, if not Madaris, uh, end up being labelled as Malays by the British, just as a simple shorthand for anyone from Southeast Asia who happened to be uh, a Muslim. Wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for that, Professor Laffin. I think that this is perhaps a good point to turn to the book and its chapters. Uh, the book consists of three parts. Each part contains four chapters with an introduction and an epilogue. Uh, so perhaps we could just start with the chapters chronologically. And I was really struck in your first chapter, uh, From the Spice Islands to the Place of Sadness, and how you begin with an account of the exile of Abdullah or Tuan Guru or, uh, and, and Said Alawi or Tuan Said to Cape Town. Through both these figures, you recuperate the histories of Capetonian tombs or Karamats as a lens into broader political and economic transformations linking Southern Africa and the Indonesian archipelago. So to start us off, and I know that we've been circling around this figure for a bit, who is Tuan Guru and in what ways does his life's trajectory inform us about the formation of a Muslim community at the Cape of Good Hope between Dutch and English control? And how does the VOC figure into this story? All right. So, well, I mean, it's it's the VOC and its relationship with the, the home court from which Tuanguru came that, you know, created the conditions for his exile. Uh, in an age of intercompany competition between the Dutch East India Company and the, uh, the English East India Company, uh, in the Eastern Moluccas, there were attempts being made by the EIC, that's the the English, the British company, to gain inroads uh, in the area around the southern, what is now the southern Philippines and in, in Papua. And uh, the the rulers of the court of, of Ternate uh, and the courts of Ternate and Tidore had long uh, made agreements with the Dutch East India Company, uh, exclusive agreements to supply uh, uh, spices or at least to remain on the side of the Dutch East India Company. And uh, when the English were sort of patrolling in the, the area in the 1770s, uh, the ruler of Tidore or some of his advisors started to wonder whether they, they might not throw their lot in with the English, or at least that's what the Dutch believed. And uh, uh, Tuanguru was one of a number of figures who were arrested and charged with trying to connect with the English um, the the Sultan of Tidore was um, exiled to the Dutch capital of Batavia. His uh, two of his crown princes were sent to Lanka into exile, and then four of his leading counselors, including Tuanguru, was sent to Cape Town. And uh, there they would have remained uh, had it not been for uh, all of them would have remained had it not been for um, a British raid on uh, Cape Town and uh, in the ensuing confusion um, two of those uh, individuals managed to escape but Tuanguru who was a, not the senior most uh, advisor who had been dispatched to the Cape um, was left behind and uh, it's also in the wake of the the fourth Anglo-Dutch war which was sort of at an end by 1784 that uh, Tuanguru um, had been found himself basically held in urban Cape Town and uh, 
in the environs of the slave lodge where a lot of um, those who had been enslaved and were serving the company and also the people who, who were their overseers uh, uh, would sleep overnight. And uh, I sort of argued it was from here he started to actively engage with the local community um, or with a community that was a subaltern community that was not overwhelmingly Muslim, which should be remarked. A lot of the people who were enslaved were not Muslims who had been sent to Cape Town, but you can see that he started to continue a mission that had been undertaken by other exiles before him. No, it seems that Said Alawi had been, um, who was an Arab who'd been exiled in the wake of the uh, the, the so-called China War of the 1740s, had already started ministering to the the slaves uh, of the of the lodge in Cape Town and also to the to the subaltern community back in the 1760s but I think he had died I'm, pre- I'm almost certain he had died before Tuanguru turned up and um, it's not to say that there weren't others with a knowledge of uh, Islam and of writing and of teaching but um, it seems based on the sheer amount of material that he left behind uh, both written at Cape Town and also, again, out on Robben Island where he was sent for a second period of some five years before his return in the 1790s. Uh, It seems that he became an obvious source of uh, inspiration and teaching and and leadership for the the subaltern community at the Cape. Um, But not necessarily... I, I don't think he was necessarily seen as a threat to VOC interests at the Cape. And it also became increasingly clear, I think, to him... Uh, and his followers that a return would never be possible. Um, and we find in, in copies of letters that were sent back to Indonesia that there was a desire that people actually be sent to him uh, at the Cape rather than him ever being able to return to either Batavia, uh, where there was already a you know, this fairly dense community of, of Moluccan exiles, or back to the Moluccas themselves. So I think there was an acceptance that uh, Cape Town and environs where he also took uh, a local uh, a wife uh, who was herself the, the daughter of a man who appears to have been from, from Bali or was known as being from Bali, uh, a ship owner or a boat owner. And he had numerous... I, I, I suppose I tell the story of Tuanguru not to just talk about one person but to talk about the formation of a community. And you see a lot of people around who, who uh, enabled his teaching uh, and who supported him in the establishment of what became known as the first mosque uh, in Cape Town up on uh, Ndorp Street. So just in this, this growing enclave uh, at the end of the 18th century that was uh, recognised as well um, by the Dutch as a source of authority. So when the, uh, the British invaded the Cape for the first time, um, attacked the Cape for the first time, uh, sorry, the second time, I should say, uh, the the Dutch actually recognised Tuanguru's authority and tried to make him uh, a military leader, you know, to create uh, a, a unit of auxiliaries to fight for the, on the Dutch behalf. And Tuanguru, he demurred, um, but allowed his uh, his deputy uh, to to stand and, and the head of these these troops who um, performed against the British with some distinction. So there's this. I think he's, it's also interesting, his, his story of uh, proselytism at the Cape, his uh, being a resource for people, um, and also that, that recognition of his authority and then the, 
the idea that the Malay, you know, well, the Javanese, as the Dutch call them at the Cape, could serve as a, a reservoir of support, military support, was also very interesting. I think these are some of the themes that I wanted to carry forward into the book uh, in other places. Thank you so much for that. I, I think that that's a really good place for us to perhaps also link up your first chapter with your second chapter, uh, Shaping Islam at the Cape of Good Hope, which provides both a social history of Muslim life uh, at the Cape and a spatial history of the urban space of Cape Town. Uh, when I was reading this chapter, it was almost as if I was back in the streets of Bokap, just sort of experiencing what it must have been like for, uh, uh, to, to be in Cape Town uh, at that point in time. So uh, perhaps to start us off, could, could you tell us a bit more about the demographic makeup of Muslims at the Cape, whether regional or in terms of class, and how this might reveal broader patterns and trajectories in the movement of laborers, prisoners, families, scholars uh, across the Indian Ocean? And what is the role of slavery in the story, and how might this history offer us a different frame to rethink the terms freedom, slavery, or manumission? All right, another big question. It's uh, first. I'm really glad that you you felt that the chapter conveyed some sense of um, you know the the streets, the the life of of the town. Um, I was really hoping for that. Um, although I hope it's not just something that could be communicated that serves to bring back memories for someone who's already been there. I hope it it can sort of um, I don't know. The, the Cape Town struck me at least. It was a a relatively small place, actually, um, at the end of the 18th century. And, and I think British estimates of the population of the, of the enslaved who they described as Malays, um, they thought there was something like 40% of the population. I think that's probably a bit high. Uh, and also then we shouldn't see the enslaved as all being uh, Muslims, as I mentioned before. Um, it was an increasingly mixed and mixing society in the early part of the 19th century, and that uh, would only gain further ground with the deposition, if you'd like, of so-called uh, free blacks uh, or people who'd been taken from ships. So there were there were people who were uh, manumitted at the Cape, and uh, a lot of missionary observers who turned up in the 1820s and 30s were increasingly concerned about the success of of a whole range of Muslim teachers. And when Tuan Guru had died by this time, died in 1807, um, but the, they noticed that the congregations were very mixed. Um, in their eyes, they saw that there were a mixture of people from uh, Indonesia and Madagascar and uh, and southern East Africa. Um, so it was a very, um, yeah, it's a mixed and mixing community. Um, but I think... What mattered here too, there were many slaves were converting to uh, Islam uh, because that, that status of being an enslaved person uh, didn't matter uh, among the believers or to a certain point though. And I do point out in the book later on, there were quite some arguments about whether people of slave background could still stand in authority over their fellow Muslims. So it's not as completely egalitarian as, as some would say. Um, but yeah, there were... There was a, uh, a preference, too, among some in the wine industry at the Cape for, for Muslim workers because it was believed that uh, they were much uh, less prone to, um, to drinking the, the, the produce. Uh, and they were also seen as, as good and, and reliable workers. So, 
it's it's a complicated story. On the one hand, you had those um, in authority at the Cape who had uh, good relations with Muslims and saw that um, you know Muslims were amenable workers. Um, but on the other hand, uh, there was a fear and, and an anxiety on the part of some, particularly the missionaries, that uh, ultimately Islam would uh, outdo. Uh, Christians and Christianity, particularly among the, the the other part of the slave body, and we have to remember many of the people who came, um, who who were moved from places in Africa and in Asia, and also, I should say too that demographically, um, I think it's only about twenty five thirty percent of those enslaved were originally from Southeast Asia. A lot of people came from points in in southern india and africa and, and madagascar so it's uh it's also remarkable in that malay as a language held on as uh one of subaltern communication and authority for quite some time and the use of the arabic script but we do see in the 19th century a transition to towards uh what we now call you know, to afrikaans to to dutch as the language um, that's shared by the subaltern population. And, and this, by the way, has its echoes today at the Cape where, you know, um, a lot of Cape Muslims would probably use Afrikaans more than they would uh, English and they see it as much as their language. And, uh, and of course, that's in, in current South Africa where, you know, there's an, an attempt among white South Africans to reclaim and, you know, maintain their heritage as Afrikaans speakers. They sort of forget about this large mass of um, Afrikaans speakers from the Cape. Um, sometimes we were talk, spoken about as their version of Afrikaans is sometimes called Afrikaans. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a – that Dutch heritage is there, um, of, but it's, it's an incredibly diverse – set of of peoples that sort of came together and and then got sort of re uh coalesced i guess uh, as as malays uh, under the british at least in name but it's not necessarily a, t- a term that they always um accepted that makes a lot of sense and i think that that sort of is constant in your broader project uh which for me was most evident in in chapter Three, where you sort of undertake a critical historicization of the term Malay itself, and you trace how the racialization of the Malays, quote unquote, uh, was a deeply contested process. Uh, you write that the British and the Dutch had contending understandings of what Malayness entailed. They drew variously on linguistic, geographical, cultural, religious arguments, and even so, other categories, including Easterness or Oosteling, uh, remain in currency. So how did the category Malay gain the significance it eventually did? And how do Cape Town and Ceylon figure set so centrally in, in, into this history? Right. So I think the answer is that, you know, for the whilst there's some agreement as to where Malays originate from, there's also uh, there was an increasing shorthand used in the 18th century. It was complained about by um, Marston, uh, whose history of Sumatra I sort of delved into in, in quite some depth. Uh, and, you know, there was a, a sort of a shorthand that the people of the coast who had become Muslim were Malays and the people of the hinterland were not. Uh, but then, of course, you have the narratives of the western part of the archipelago, which uh, was not colonised first. It was really the story of uh, Dutch engagement 
with Southeast Asia is much more about the Eastern Archipelago, about the Moluccas and Java uh, and Sulawesi. And, and for them, for the Dutch, the Malays were always um, a minority uh, community um, among them. You know, people were listed separately as, as Malays. And Malay was not really a term commonly used uh, in Dutch parlance. They had all sorts of other shorthands for the people's who in, they were either enslaving or fighting against, working with, uh, or later, um, uh, in fact, recruiting uh, for service in their uh, their further possessions. And uh, Osterling uh, was just a term that just meant uh, Oriental in general. But at the Cape, I often found lists of banished pilgrim, uh, banished uh, people were just referred to as uh, Indians, Indianen. Um, so Malay was a, a rather a rare term, but it does start to crop up at least in the Dutch ranks uh, in Lanka in the in the seventeen nineties, just on the eve of the the first of the British uh, conquest of Dutch Dutch Ceylon. Um, but the British, I think, were always. It, it struck me that you know when Dutch books describing the actions of say people from Sulawesi, whether they were Bugis or. Um, or others were being described as as Malays as well, glossed as Malay, and uh, and some of the behaviours associated or claimed to be common among the people of Sulawesi in particular, such as running amok um, in a situation of extreme urgency and distress, and going out and you know killing killing as many people as possible in a sort of a uh, in a fit. Um, that increasingly got labelled as something that Malays did among some of the uh, less scrupulous writers on topics concerning the Malays, as they called them, at places that were now under British authority, most particularly Cape Town and Ceylon. But there were others who were eager to, eager to supplant this narrative and to convert Malays, much like the Dutch had attempted before them, uh, or convert Southeast Asians into a useful fighting force, a reliable force of people who were uh, trained and whose ferocity could be used against their own opponents. And so you start to, to see the making of the, I say the myth, um, or at least the legend perhaps is a better better term, of the, the incredibly loyal Malay soldier. And uh, I wanted to say that this story had its use, its particular development was on the island of Sri Lanka where under the British a, a special regiment was set up, um, the Malay regiment, which had been studied by uh, Hussein Mir uh, in the past and also Ranit talks about in her recent book as well. Um, you see um, an attempt to bolster their ranks, but because of the nature of British colonisation in, in Southeast Asia, they did draw on uh, people recruited briefly uh, in, in Java and, and Madura in particular um, during the brief interregnum uh, under raffles uh, between 1811 and 1816. But after that, a lot of the recruitment was starting to come from the Malay Peninsula proper and from the, the hinterland of, of Penang. And so you start to see, um, indeed, the, the community is getting more and more recruits brought in from what is British Malaya. And so the Malay regiment becomes arguably more Malay. But but even then, when you look back at uh, members of the, the then by then disbanded regiment after the 1870s, you know, the writings about their cricket club, um, 
which sort of became the new form of the social focus for the for that community on on uh, Sri Lanka. Uh, you see them talking about themselves as having been as much Jawa as Malayu. Uh, and using other terms to recognising that there was there's quite a hybrid origin to, to their Malayness, but certainly taking pride in the the very uh, British narrative of the Malay as well, almost, if you like, a, a martial race before they were talking explicitly about martial races. I think that that focus on what it does to take... The Malay military story in Sri Lanka, which, as a you know, someone trained as a historian of Sri Lanka, is a very familiar story, but to put it into context, as you explain, with what you call, I think, in this chapter, the Cape Tonian analogues, or even to think that story through Southeast Asia, I thought that really did do something quite new with military history, and to sort of, if one thinks, as you mentioned, with the foreshadowing of what happens with the Sikh community in British India this sort of move of thinking through Southeast Asian migrants, I think really gives us new approaches to military history across empire. Yeah, although I've never thought of myself as a military historian, that's for sure. I, 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 I see why. <laughs> yeah, it really connects uh, nicely also with the history that we know from South Asia. And uh, now we have more to think about, I guess, in other parts of the Indian Ocean. Um, the chapter takes us then to uh, Friends, Firm and Warm, Chapter 4, uh, and it takes its point of departure uh, from the prevailing colonial anxieties over increasing ranks of Islam, particularly against the backdrop of increasing connections between South and East Africa to Mecca and the growing popularity of pilgrimage uh, during the Age of Steam. Can you briefly sketch how Muslims experience mobility across the southern coast of the Indian Ocean, from the Spice Islands all the way to East and South Africa uh, across the 19th century? Uh, what precipitated these transformations and how did they uh, transform the self-perception or communal identifications of Muslims in South Africa? Well, I think uh, it's easier to talk about the South African case. I think with the introduction of uh, steamers, um, and the democratization, if you like, it, it became uh, a more achievable journey for many people who had saved up. And, and it's important to note, too, that in the, the first, say, four decades of British rule at the Cape, um, you did see this, this emergence of community that had been um, slighted and mocked. And, and indeed, you, you see a lot of early uh, British writings on the, the Malays at the Cape reflected earlier. Dutch prejudices claimed that they were inherently involved in gambling and cheating and thieving and stealing, etc., etc., smuggling, you name it. Um, but you see this the emergence of this image of people who were respectable labourers, uh, fishermen, um, masons in particular, um, trusted carpenters, uh, Malay, you know, Southeast Asian women were responsible um, for looking after families. They were good uh, housekeepers, bookkeepers, etc. So there's this emergence of this respectable community, and you and you see this desire among that community to to make the Hajj, to to connect, not necessarily to go all the way back to Southeast Asia where they had perhaps been sent from or where their ancestors had come from, but to use 
This place is it's their new home. It's where they have their community. But to make that pilgrimage to Mecca and return, uh, to give it uh, greater guidance, and it's an incredibly long journey up the coast of Africa. It's almost as far as traveling from uh, Indonesia itself. But you start to see that the more regular provision of steamships and and groups of pilgrims um, was started to started to to travel. And in fact, made multiple journeys uh, from the eighteen forties, I believe. Um, up up the coast of Africa, and it's. I think it also helped them think about an African identity that they had, um, calling uh, at key ports. I think Zanzibar too. Um, it seems that um, people from Southeast Asia were starting to stop there, and they were even advised in some cases to to um, remain uh, at Zanzibar and study before continuing on to the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. It's also striking uh, to me, certainly from the, the snippets that I found from the 1850s, that uh, it was felt that there was a natural collaboration between the British Empire and the Ottoman Empire, and that was, of course, strengthened by the British Empire's assistance for the Ottoman Empire in the Crimean War. Um, so there's a belief there were natural partners and that uh, although some uh, British consuls wrote you know, dismissively of the welcome that awaited pilgrims in the Ottoman lands, you can say that the the Ottoman Hejaz, and it's important to remember too that after the 1840s, um, the Ottomans were making ever greater efforts to sort of centralise their or reassert their authority over the Hejaz and make sure that everyone knew that it was an Ottoman province and to support the scholars. And you see very few complaints actually among the pilgrims from Africa who were making their way up to uh, to the Hejaz about Ottoman authority or the way it's run. Uh, it was rather seen as a positive experience by many. Uh, and a lot of the Cape Tonian pilgrims into the 1880s were, were relatively well off. Um, as too were the pilgrims who were coming from Indonesia, although we have, of course, the infamous, you know, the cultivation system, the, the, the liberal regime, um, the people were... There were certain parts of Indonesian society where people were making enough money to send family members on the Hajj, and they were generally regarded in the 1880s as well as as relatively well-off uh, pilgrims. And, of course, you do find stories in the, the press about uh, difficulties and misappropriations and uh, um, distress of treatment at uh, quarantine facilities or fumigation stations uh, but by and large, I think there was a, a positive sense among many Muslims about the experience of the Hajj for all its difficulties and the, the communion that they felt. But it is striking that the whereas in the 1860s, um, an Ottoman studying at the Cape or working at the Cape was frustrated by the fact that some of his local rivals were taking advice of a scholar from Southeast Asia living in Mecca, um, you see that there's a distancing of the communities, a ling- linguistic distancing of the communities by the 1880s and 1890s. They're increasingly not merging or, you know, seeing each other, those of Southeast Asia and those of Southern Africa, and not necessarily seeing each other as uh, exactly the same sets of people. Um, and I, I think there's a, this also contributes to the formation of a much stronger sense of Catonian Muslim identity, uh, in part linguistic, you know, the move away from Malay and towards Afrikaans, uh, and yet at the same time, of course, recognising they're all part of the one uh, the one Muslim world and it's a Muslim world that has 
uh, an Ottoman sultan. I I think this might be a good place for, for us to shift gears into uh, the second part of the book, Muslim uh, Mediations, which really brings us out of the Cape to, to examine uh, the social history of Muslims across this broad terrain. And in particular, the, first, the fifth chapter, uh, Other Malays, Other Exiles, turns to Ceylon as a crucial site for ongoing debates around the constitution of Malay identity and the making of colonial boundaries between the British and the Dutch domains. Here, you take great care to emphasize the diversity of the Jawi Muslim community at Colombo, constituted of multiple crossings, alliances, patronage networks, etc. So what was the sort of broad historical context against which uh, um, these migrations to Ceylon occurred? And why does Ceylon emerge as so central to these crossings? And how does this complicate prevailing understandings of identity and lineage? Well, I think for the Dutch, Ceylon was always a slightly more uh, dangerous proposition to send uh, a Muslim scholar. And, and here I did turn back to the, the famous story of Sheikh Yusuf, uh, who was uh, exiled in the 1680s and initially to Ceylon. Now, of course, Ceylon uh, was part of the Dutch network, at least coastal Ceylon, the, the cities that they controlled. Um, but it was also still very firmly um, a part of the Muslim networks of uh, exchange and movement. And the Dutch were anxious about the fact that whilst he was in Ceylon, uh, the, the, the Sheikh Yusuf was able to receive uh, gifts and visitors and, and speak to or write for Southeast Asians back home. Now, most of what he wrote seems to have been completely uh, ironic and focused on the experience of being sent into exile. Um, but it was his communications uh, with a scholar who, an Indian scholar who'd also been exiled from Southeast Asia and was able to return to India that caused the Dutch to send him that, that much further away uh, to, to the Cape. So it seems that um, the Dutch often favoured Lanka as a locus for sending uh, exiled princes, but if they were going to send away uh, some of the ulama, and this has only really just occurred to me that the Cape was perhaps the safest place to send them. This is not to say that Lanka was a place without Muslims and without Muslim leadership. Um, I was really interested to note that some of the names lined up in the Dutch reports, for example, about the head of uh, the local Muslim community in Colombo in the 1760s who was said to run a seminary. Uh, that same name uh, of Ibrahim Musa, um, I think it was Sheikh uh, Musa Aydrus, uh, is also to be found in the memoirs of some of the elite Javanese exiles uh, that have been studied, again, by uh, Ranit. And she talks about these, these memories of, of guidance and care that were offered by religious teachers. Uh, in Lanka. I think as well in, in Lanka, uh, at Colombo, and we have to remember there were people also sent to other places, uh, Jaffna, uh, Gaul, uh, and, other, and other places. There's, you know, a sense of there's an exilic community, but there's also the, among this elite community, there was long the policy of uh, deploying uh, those of princely rank in the military. So, in fact, this is sort of the origins of the Malay regiment. It was uh, of elite uh, exilic sons serving as officers over uh, men who'd been recruited from places like, like Madura uh, 
or from Bugis and, and other places, or even locally uh, among the Southeast Asian ranks in Colombo. But what I think makes a big difference in terms of the story, sure, that the regiment lives on, but the exilic component uh, evaporates. So unlike the Cape where uh, you had a few key elite exiles like Twanguru remained, and, and certainly their families remained, um, one rather hostile British governor in 1806 and 1807 ensured that uh, the remaining Dutch uh, servants of the former the Dutch East India Company and their exiles was, were deported and sent back to Indonesia. Now, it's not clear that all of them sent back. Uh, among those is Wira Kasuma, who I've mentioned in the past, uh, whose, whose own father had been uh, exiled to South Africa and then after their brief return to Java in the 1780s, they were exiled, both of them uh, and their, their families, uh, to Colombo. I'm not sure what happened to Wirakusuma. But uh, it does seem that the community, if we call it that, in, in Colombo became much more focused around the garrison than it did around a community of artisans. And there's also a strong sense, I wanted to argue, about these, these Malays uh, with a very strong Javanese component in, in Colombo. Um, there's a very strong sense of difference, I think, with the other Muslims uh, at the Cape. So whereas Malay was, you know, effectively a term of equivalence for Muslim at the Cape uh, in Colombo, Malay was only one sort of Muslim against other sorts of Muslims, uh, whether they're more or as, as, as the term was often used for so Muslims of southern Indian origin who lived and worked in Colombo were by far the majority of the Muslims, something like 95% of them. So you, you are dealing with a, a community of Muslims that's quite conscious of their minoritarian status, but they're also conscious of their, their privileged status in that they're seen as uh, respectable again. And, and it's, there's a, apart from some hiccups in the Candian Wars where some people gl- blamed the Malays in part for the loss of the garrison at Candy in 1803, they were effectively presented from the 1810s and on into well into the 1840s and 1850s as being you know the most reliable sort of servants of of British Empire and after their their um, regiment was um, you know demobilized uh, many of those same families saw service in analogous fields you know in the police in particular but also in the, the railways and the postal service so they they became well known as um uh, you know, a reliable clerical class uh, in in Lanka. That's really fascinating. And I think that here uh, you also attempt in the next chapter between Shinkin Kandy and distant Istanbul to really situate uh, the community of quote, Malays in Ceylon in relation to ad- some of these other communities that you, you've just mentioned, right? So on one hand, to the larger community of Moors, and on the other hand, to other religious communities, including, you know, Hindu Jaffna Tamils in the north uh, and others. So how did British colonial perceptions on uh, around the role of Ceylon Malays come into conflict with their own attempts at self-definition, either in relation to or against uh, parallel, parallel Southern Indian Hadrami or North Indian Muslim communities? And how does one account for this uh, shift or tension between cosmopolitanism and chauvinism? Yeah, I mean, that's a very difficult question. I'm not sure it's one that I was able to answer in that, in that uh, chapter. Um, 
you do see a shared cosmopolitanism in that I found, you know, very fleeting evidence of um, a respect for the Ottoman sultan, you know, that would be shared with um, the Moorish community on on Lanka. And yet I, I never saw evidence of a Malay being put forward or standing up to be counted as uh, a representative of the um, the the Ottoman Sultan on, on, in in Lanka, you know, I was interested in how the Ottomans in the eighteen sixties and a little bit earlier, but they start to be interested in pointing consuls to the Indian Ocean world. And uh, sometimes the consuls, you know, their position was taken by Europeans for their own interest. And I, I certainly talk about a couple of very self interested in Europeans in in the story. Uh, but yeah, there's a lack of documentation and visibility. Um, in the sort of the 1850s and 1860s, I found it a difficult, difficult story to tell. But I was struck by the consistent, the importance that was maintained for having their own mosque, for example, and disputes over authority uh, within within the mosque uh, about you know whether they would accept the burial of someone who was outside the Malay community in the grounds of the mosque. So it does speak to this. Um, I don't like to say it, but you know, natural sort of desire to close ranks, close linguistic and cultural ranks. And yet at the same time, it's very clear that many, many Malays, so-called, were were merging with local Sinhalese or Tamil-speaking families, that they were often uh, bilingual uh, or even trilingual. And that, uh, you know, the the story of this, there's really a, a long ongoing story of the submergence of the Malay Muslim community within uh, the larger um Muslim community of, of Lanka today. Uh, thank you so much for that. Uh, so the seventh chapter, I think, returns to the space of Cape Town to trace the emergence of pan-Islamism and other powerful currents of affiliation, which I think provides a really sort of uh, nice bridge to what you had just said. Um, to narrate this story, however, you underscore the need to situate these developments within a broader, increasingly global space, one with thickening links between Cape Town to Ottoman Mecca and Khadifal Cairo. Uh, what was the significance of these political and technological developments in what some of this term, an age of steam and print, uh, to the growth of an idea of pan-Islamism? What was, this develop- was this development one that was entirely historically novel? I think what's everyone just agrees that it's it's the nature of the speed of communications, not just of being able to uh, steam up the coast uh, of Africa, but that uh, cables had been laid and uh, communication networks had rapidly allowed um, news about the the Sultanate and the wider world, you know, is is occurring at the same time, and that even uh, images are being spread. I mean, I. I think that people were really eager to know what the Sultan looked like, the Sultan of Istanbul, and of course uh, in Istanbul, um, it's very important for for the Ottomans, you know, to promulgate the image, particularly of Abdul Hamid II um, after the eighteen seventies in eighteen seventy seven. And I think it's important to to see that people were aware of grand strategy, global coalitions, even if they didn't understand the exact parameters. Um, and, and I think there was a strong awareness that um, you know, Britain had sort of let the Ottomans down in, in the wars of the 1870, in 1877 
um, and that um, whilst you know Britain and the Ottoman Empire were not at war with each other, they certainly weren't the friends that they had been, and that uh, this this idea, you know, even the terminology pan-Islamism was something that was developed in the 1870s to describe a consciously uh, sort of global uh, program that was, you know, undertaken by the Ottomans to to combat pan-Slavism, actually, um, and was to activate the sympathies and donations of Muslims the world over to assist in their, in their cause. So um, I think and I talk later in the book about, in Chapter 9, I talk more about how this uh, this activation was quite successful, really, in, in parts of, um, of Indonesia in the Dutch Indies, where people were starting to more and more see the Ottoman Sultan as their Sultan. But I, th- I think at the Cape 2, um, there's a growing affection for the Sultan, but it's an affection that was being uh, cast as a natural partnership with uh, Queen Victoria. And this this view was uh, sort of pushed uh, by one very self-regarding uh, and briefly Ottoman consul uh, at Cape Town, uh, who I talk about in in that chapter as well. But at the same time, it it you know the people seeking to stand up and position themselves as speaking for them, the Cape Muslims to the Ottoman Sultan created uh frustrations in some quarters and i wanted to unpack the the arguments between various people and and also too about the awareness that one of the this this ottoman scholar who had been dispatched to the cape to assist uh in ottoman terms with uh, the education of the benighted muslims of the cape um many of his opponents saw in him you know a plan to wean them off their particular juridical affiliation to the school of Imam Shafi and to take uh, the school of juridical thought that was uh, in, you know, dominant in the Ottoman Empire, or at least uh, dominant away from the Indian Ocean arena. So I do want to look at, you know, there's this, this rapidity as well, and that people are able to write to centres like uh, Mecca, Cairo, or even London, you know, asking for support uh, for their own arguments. Uh, so there's a sense of this more rapidly networked world. It is definitely new, and it's a world in which the image and understanding of, of global politics is coming to the fore for many people. Thank you so much for, for, for the answer. Uh, I think that um, that's sort of also related to the eighth chapter, where you extend this line of historical inquiry to examine one specific episode uh, in, in, in this history, which is the exile of the Egyptian nationalist Ahmed Urabi to Ceylon. Um, this episode, you argue, reveals both the range and the limitations of pan-Islamist affiliations in light of imperial hegemony. And your assessment here, ultimately, was that these bonds of pan-Islamism were, quote, very much oriented to a westerly vision of the Muslim world that made little space for their more, for their more east, easterly fellow believers who seemed so resolutely allied to Britain, at least on Lanka. What accounted for this unevenness across different geographical spaces? And what were the most powerful ideological contenders to pan-Islamism among Lankan Muslims? Right. So, uh, yeah, I felt that, you know, when I first read about the story of Muhammad Rabi and his exile 
to Lanka, I thought, well, you know, here's going to be, this is going to be a story that people haven't looked at enough, uh, at least as far as his years of exile go. And it's going to generate all sorts of stories of uh, uh, enthusiasm and connection. And then I found that it didn't. Um, he's a, a rather controversial figure. And it's also important to note that Ahmad Arabi was one of uh, seven uh, elite Egyptians from the Egyptian revolutionary government that were exiled uh, by the British to uh, Lanka at the end of 1882. They arrived in, in early 1883, along with their families and significant numbers of retainers. And then um, first I thought, apart from unpacking the story of why uh, an Egyptian nationalist as he's now known, was was exiled. He's a figure who saw himself very much in messianic uh, religious terms too, um, but he saw himself as a loyal servant of the Sultan against his own corrupt ruler, the Khedive of Egypt, who was, of course, backed by the British and reinstalled by the British in the name of the same Ottoman Sultan. So then you ended up with this curious situation where Egypt was made a protectorate. It was still part of the Ottoman Empire until the First World War, and yet was ruled or run for all intents and purposes by uh, the British who uh, ensured that the Khedive and his descendants did what they were told. Ahmad Arabi, uh, by contrast, was linked to a new movement uh, for Muslim reform, uh, embodied by Muhammad Abdu, a, a scholar at Al-Azhar, but also, uh, importantly, in charge of uh, printing uh, the, the official uh, Egyptian journal. And I, I, thought, I thought it was really important to bring Egypt into the story here and perhaps in more depth than other chapters in that Egypt has long figured as a key place of authority for uh, scholars of the Indian Ocean world as a place to go. They may not necessarily have travelled to the Ottoman capital, but they would have gone to Ottoman Egypt, which was run from the 19th century again by this, this family uh, of descent, descended from Muhammad Ali Pasha, a, fam a family that at one point had been so strong that it, Muhammad Ali had even threatened his own uh, master in, in Istanbul, and, and it was his troops that were occupying uh, the Hejaz uh, until the 1840s. So there was a strong, you know, the real sense that Egypt was the place that mattered. Now, in following the story of the exiles, uh, I didn't have access. I know apparently there are some uh, memoirs held in the Egyptian National Archives, uh, but I was sort of treading in the, the furrows of other scholars before me and looking at a lot of the the published and, and uh, some secret documents referring to the exiles and their experience in, in Lanka. And, and what emerged was not a story of unanimity, certainly not among the exiles. There was a great deal of distance uh, between some of them and Orabi himself, whom, who was regarded by a couple of the exiles as being a bit of a vain, uh, vainglorious sort of fool who sort of imagined that at any moment he was going to be whisked back to Egypt, the head of a new government. It's clear that Orabi himself was quite pious. He sought out the, uh, the company of uh, Sufi sheikhs, but uh, largely members of the uh, the Moorish community. And it was also very striking that at the time of Arabi and the others' arrival at the Cape, uh, sorry, at, in Lanka, um, that the Malays were no longer um, in office as, as uh, leading soldiers. Um, there were a few prominent figures, including the printer, Una Saldin, who I've, I talk about. Uh, but by and large, the dominant 
the wealthy Muslim community that rallied to support the exiles uh, was a, a Moorish one. And among the exiles, some gravitated, they associated more with the, the British elite uh, at the Cape, and they were slowly repatriated over the years to come, although some died quite to the shock of the others. And and throughout, I was looking for, you know, news of Ahmad Rabi or even reports about Ahmad Rabi in uh, the writings of Onas Saldin, uh, who had who ran two newspapers over two separate periods in Lanka. And I was struck by the absence of any reporting about him at all. Um, rather, it's it seems that the Malay relationship with Ahmad Rabi was one of uh, surveillance and it's... Uh, the police who were uh, who were watching over him may well have been uh, Malay soldiers or, or former Malay soldiers, I should say, Malay police, and uh, it doesn't seem to have been anything that that made Ahmad Arabi stand out in a way that has has resonated over the years with the with the Malay community at all. And ultimately, his return uh, to Cairo disappointed many of his former former followers when uh, after 1902 he started to uh, talk about the benefits of British rule and how uh, British rule in in Ceylon had been to the benefit of members of all religious communities so he's he's an interesting character that's to be sure and Ahmad Arabi of course was later for for a time he was um, blamed for the British annexation of Egypt and then his um, his memory was rehabilitated uh, by the later uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser this is a postscript. Unfortunately, due to a technical problem, uh, we've lost the recordings of uh, Tamara Fernando and Kelvin Eng uh, towards the end of the interview. So I'm filling in uh, and reading the questions that they've asked uh, Professor Michael Laffin, starting with part three of the book, Eastern Returns. Uh, In the ninth chapter, A Caliph for Greater Java, Tamara asks, the ninth chapter, consonant with the third part of the book more broadly, examines how the people of Coates Java came to be viewed as increasingly important uh, constituency with a specific focus on the movements of those who were identified as Coates Arabs in Southeast Asia. How did these communities figure in the Ottoman turn towards Southeast Asia through its network of consuls? And how was this received by Malay and Tamil observers? What accounted for the reason behind this increasing investment in the idea of the Ottoman Sultan as a spiritual protector? Right. Thank you so much, Tamara. Yeah, I I guess this is where I was engaging, uh, going back home, if you like, to, to Indonesia. But again, through the, the story of the Arab community. And it uh, it be- became clear that whilst uh, in the early phases of the, you know, the 19th century, certainly in the middle of the 19th century, it was increasingly embattled Indonesian sovereigns who were resisting uh, conquest by the now Dutch metropolitan state, uh, were sending entreaties to anyone and everyone in the hope that they could assist them, but uh, including the Ottoman Sultan. Uh, missions were being sent uh, with prominent pilgrims and uh, Sufi figures were being sent to Mecca, and some of them were being picked up and, and taken on to Istanbul to uh, ask for the assistance of the Ottoman Sultan. And in, in most cases, uh, they were politely ignored or, um, you know, for, for fear of upsetting 
the imperial balance uh, in Europe itself, where the Ottomans needed as many friends as they could muster for their own uh, battles against the, the Russians. And uh, I, th- I think that we see a transition too uh, in, the, in the 1860s and 1870s to uh, a reliance upon Arab mediators, so people who had familial connections with both what is now Wadi, Wadi, Wadi Hadranaut and what is now Yemen uh, and Southeast Asia, South and Southeast Asia. And we see prominent figures like Habib Abdurrahman Zahir, who had experience in Malabar and in Penang and also in Aceh, who spoke for Southeast Asian rulers and, and spoke for Southeast Asian peoples uh, in Arabic with authority to the Ottoman state. And they started to gain more and more traction and interest among uh, figures in the Ottoman Empire itself, uh, figures with some authority. And there was an increasing consensus in the quasi-official press that something should be done for the welfare of the peoples among whom these uh, Arabs lived, the so-called benighted Jawa peoples or Jawa. And, and the term Jawa was just often used uh, in a sense of meaning Southeast Asia writ large. So, you know, you had Jawi peoples who were threatened by uh, the Dutch or by the British or even by the, the Siamese in the case of uh, southern, uh, southern what is now southern Thailand. Uh, so there's a, a sense of a need to do something for these people, but there's also uh, a tacit agreement, and, and particularly among the consuls that were dispatched and were begrudgingly allowed on Dutch territory after 1881, I think, um, that the spokesmen for Southeast Asian Muslims should be Arab spokesmen uh, who were seen as uh, better Muslims or um, um, less inclined to be to be lax or you know sensual, etc. There's all sorts of Oriental stereotypes about Southeast Asians that were imbibed uh, as well by the Ottomans when they're talking about. Southeast Asia and Southeast Asians. And uh, it's also at this point that you start to see that the Arab communities within of long-standing residents within the Dutch Indies uh, want to make use of these connections to the Ottoman Empire, in some cases to an empire that they had never seen themselves, which their fathers or grandfathers or great-grandfathers had come from because um, Yemen was an Ottoman province and Hadramaut was technically part of that that. Ottoman Empire, um, they're trying to make use of these imperial connections to better their own position because for many Arabs living under the Dutch, uh, they had to reside in uh, specially designated wards. Uh, they, If they wanted to move from one place to another, they had to apply for a pass from a Dutch official. They had to justify their movements. So, you know, for them, they had, uh, economically speaking, they were in a better position than many uh, others in in the Indies, but uh, being designated so-called foreign Orientals, Fremde Osterlingen, so there's that term Osterlingen again, um, they didn't have the full freedom of movement that they desired. And that they've, so the connection to an Ottoman patron and a voice from a European Ottoman state, after all, um, was felt to be advantageous for these for these Arabs. Now, many of the the Arabs who initially connected to uh, the Ottoman state were enthusiasts for it were actually from members of the uh, the Sada, or they were Sayyids themselves. They claimed descent from the Prophet. But uh, as we move into the early part of the ninth of the the nineteenth, uh, sorry, the twentieth century, um, 
you know, their leadership of the community was increasingly contested by people who were not so highborn or could not claim these lineages back in Hadramaut uh, and who, in fact, identified in many places as being uh, more locally born, that has been Mualad or Pranakan uh, in Malay. And we start to see a, uh, a shift, in fact, that it's the, the Mualad and the Pranakan people, the locally born, who actually invest more and more in the idea of um, Ottoman status and the importance of maintaining the Ottoman caliphate, particularly into the First World War, uh, when we see that uh, the Sharif of Mecca uh, abandons his relationship you know, with the Ottoman Sultan and, in, and becomes an ally of the British. And this causes all sorts of problems, uh, as I track in the book, for the Sayyid community in that they, they lose the, the authority that they once had, particularly after the defeat of Sharif Hussein. And uh, we start to see with the emergence of this, uh, the Saudi state um, that it's the, the Paranakan, the the more egalitarian uh, or at least the communities in, in Indonesia that claim not to be ruled purely by lineage alone but rather by learning uh, that you start to see this shift uh, towards uh, a lingering attachment if you like to the Ottoman state which is now under the Committee for Union and Progress. Thank you Tamara. Now we move to the isms. Uh, <laughs> And things, I think the last two substantive chapters accelerate uh, as we move towards uh, World War II. So in the 11th chapter, uh, which explores the various ideological forces occasionally contending, though more often uh, overlapping, that emerged to the fore in the early 20th century, as we mentioned nationalism, pan-Islamism, and pan-Asianism. The making of uh, ostensibly bounded and local subjectivities, uh, as you argue, always bore traces of the foreign. Uh, similarly, the conceptual geography of a reimagined Asia often overlapped with that of an earlier pan-Islamism. Uh, from where did uh, uh, these ideological movements drive their main uh, support base, and how did their ideologues uh, toggle between the different and seemingly contradictory uh, political subjectivities uh, they demanded as national citizens, as religious affiliate, and as colonial subjects? Yeah, I suppose um, this is, it felt like going back and doing unfinished history from my first book. I was really struck by the prominence accorded to Japan uh, in reformist Muslim thinking, both as a model um, for, you know, an Eastern model. And it's it's also um, the reformulation of, of phrases that were used uh, by, uh, well, Mustafa Kamal, uh, and also before him uh, in Egypt, Ahmad Arabi, you know, talking about Egypt for the Egyptians, but then others were saying the East for Easterners, you know, Ashaq al-Sharqiyin, and this this from Cairo, this language of Easterner, um, which was freighted and laden um, and read in Southeast Asian circles as being a, uh, an intrinsically Muslim sort of East, but it was a, a capacious sense that was starting to welcome the idea of, of others who could join in and, and, and assist. So there was this openness to um, the idea of, Japan as a model, not necessarily Japan as the natural leader, which of course was the 
the path taken in the 1930s by Japanese ideologues who, you know, turned to some of them who turned to uh, the Muslim world as a useful uh, community, if you like, for for pushing their own ambitions, uh, much as they thought about the Buddhist world too, I should say. So it's not just a an alliance between Japan and Japan and Islam, but uh, I was curious to trace the ways in which figures like Mas Mansur were able to deal with, first of all, the the loss of the Ottoman Caliphate, you know, the um, the betrayal, if you like, by Ataturk by walking away and saying that, you know, that we are concerned with matters to do with Turkey and uh, the, new, the new state is not uh, in charge of the entire Muslim world. And this search for leadership, um, this vacuum in a way, um, which opened up even greater calls for thinking about well, where are the models, you know, where can where can we go and and where do people like us, in this case Indonesians, fit on the world stage? There were these um, uh, failed caliphate congresses that were held in, in Cairo and Mecca. And the Indonesians were not particularly remarked upon as being very active participants, but they were certainly debating in their own pages uh, the, the place of, you know, what is the Muslim world and what is the East? And there's an agreement that uh, capitalism and colonialism was all part of the thing that needed to be overcome. So I, I guess I was trying to clear a space and see why, um, you know, with the appearance of Japan, why so many people who had, had been active, actively calling for Muslim reform, Muslim unity, uh, orientations towards Cairo could then flip and become albeit under duress in some cases, I think we're still relatively open propagandists for uh, the Japanese, as long as the Japanese respected Islam. Uh, that was the important part. And and I think in, in Chapter 12, I do talk about, um, you know, I follow Bender's lead here in many, in many respects uh, in thinking about how uh, the Japanese had to contend with Islam and it was just a force that was too strong for them to uh, defeat. But... The isms, yeah. Originally, I didn't have quite so many isms in the title, but my uh, my copy editor suggested it, there'd be a nicer balance if Pan Islam became Pan Islamism, and uh, I wanted to show how these these categories all overlapped without necessarily contradicting each other uh, at this point in time in the in the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties in particular, even as some people who did go to Japan began uh, to worry about. You know the plans. Well, where was where was the place of Indonesia in the future? Um, you know, if if not independent, if in its relations with uh, rising powers like that of Japan. Moving to the tenth chapter for Arabs, Arabic, and the community. Tamara asked, staying with Southeast Asia, the tenth chapter examines the growth of quotes, an Arab voice in the British and Dutch colonies, as long-standing communities of Hadramis uh, came to be rich, racialized as Arabs in the 19th century. Central to the story were the debates between Sayyids and Sheikhs around questions of religious reform, genealogy, and modernization. In so doing, all ideas around community identification once defined around notions of descent from the Prophet, came to be challenged and exploded. 
can you tell us uh, tell us and tell our listeners about some of the content contending positions uh, in this debate and what consequences they pose for understandings of identity and community i think the main thing that he pointed out was that um, the japanese explicitly you know, recognized Islam as a force, they armed Muslims and they organized them or helped organize them. Uh, and as others have shown too, uh, Jeremy Yellen, um, I think the other thing that uh, Indonesians had on their side was that the Japanese didn't always know what they were doing. Uh, they were clumsy. Uh, they didn't have uh, an extremely developed plan for how things would work out. I think they were surprised in large degree by how much of Southeast Asia their military had overrun. Uh, Burma was an unexpected bonus and then, of course, a major problem for Japanese forces, uh, which they tried to run as a buffer state uh, and, of course, were turned against by the forces of uh, the the person that they had put in, in uniform. Uh, the Japanese, Japanese rule over Java, of course, differed from rule in the eastern islands there were parts of the archipelago were placed under the navy parts were under the military and the experience of japanese rule was by ne- by no means even um in fact my one of my uh, indonesian teachers uh Yohani johns represent now in her 90s remembers the Japanese period quite kindly. I mean, her her brother was in fact taken to Japan, became a, a, a nuclear scientist. So it's, but at the same time, and I, I want to emphasize here for the readers that I don't want to say that the period of Japanese rule was one of prosperity and harmony. Um, but it was a period in which I think Muslim voices were able to come out and I think make uh, ally Islam to the national cause in very explicit ways. And I think even with some of the flags that were adopted, um, made it quite explicit that, you know, Islam was going to be part of the intrinsic identity of the the future Indonesian nation. But even here we see disputes, factionalisms between people like Mas Mansur on, on one hand and uh, members of the Nahdlatul Ulama on the other, you know, in the formation of different militias and different, uh, forces under the Japanese and forces which the Japanese ultimately uh, realized they couldn't control and even tried to uh, disarm, you know, to uh, take away the, take away the weapons before surrender and then being entrusted with maintaining the security of Java for the return of uh, the British and the Dutch, uh, who were of course being served still at this point in 1945 by so after 1945-1946 by troops uh, brought from India. So it's, uh, uh, I I thought it really important to bring that sort of story in uh, to to look as well at, um, what was I, where was I going with this? Just the, the, the consequences of the Japanese are, I think, were still visible very late in Suharto's re- regime, you know, the establishment of village watches, of having military officials at every level of government. This was all something that was part of the, the new order regime. And, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that, and the, the flag ceremonies, so much of what was happening in Indonesia, certainly when I was uh, a 16-year-old visiting in uh, 1986, you know, I was I was struck by things I didn't realize actually owed themselves practices, public practices and rituals that owed themselves to the Japanese occupation. About the epilogue, Tamara uh, asked, 
The epilogue opens with Van Dong in 1955. This is not just a book that crosses archives and geographic spaces, such as Cape Town, Southeast Asia, and South Asia, but also empires, the Dutch, the British, the Ottomans, and also temporal scales, bringing us from the late 18th century up to the mid-20th and the post-colonial moment. A signal achievement, and really rare, We've all agreed that this book is already incredibly capacious and ambitious in terms of the size it considers, but as the epilogue sketches Bandong and the often violent post-colonial histories of the Bay of Bengal especially, we just want to briefly ask, were there other sites that you chose not to incorporate into the story? Within this already plural geography of other polities and their politics in the story, such as the intriguing parallels between Siam, Burma, and Ceylon, and Buddhism and Hinduism in this mix, fissures that we can already see in the 1950s moment, and certainly in the present. I think one of the questions uh, Indian Ocean historians often ask themselves is, where does the historic Indian Ocean world begin and end? some version of an interconnected cultural, economic, legal sphere, depending on what kind of historian you ask. Can you say a little bit about where you see these worlds beginning and ending? Mm. Well, to go back to, to places I didn't talk about, uh, I knew that in, I had to sort of limit things in some way. Uh, and so, you know, I, I didn't talk about the Buddhist confraternities. And, I mean, I hinted at stories of connection is in some cases where the the sort of decapitated candian kingdom uh, some of the monks of the kingdom actually actively sought for the introduction of a prince from mainland southeast asia from either burma or or siam although interestingly one of the people who set that plot in motion was uh, a malay who'd been previously in the service of the candian king um, there were other things that i wish I had remembered to include. Uh, so Malay served actively in the uh, defeat of the so-called polygar kings of uh, southern India, um, and a lot of those Malays were, subs- you know, Malay soldiers were subsequently um, recruited from Penang. Uh, but I forgot to mention, of course, that that's exactly where the polygar um, exiles were sent themselves. And uh, it's a story that I'd like to follow follow up. You know, what happened to those Southern Indian kings who were dispatched to Malaya, to the homeland of some of the people who had defeated them? Uh, there are other, and I, and I did tend not to write very much about the Siamese-Malay uh, story, although that that does loom in in stories of, for example, when the Ottoman warship, the Erturul, um, travelled to Southeast Asia, uh, you know, to wave the Ottoman flag, that uh, there were also letters brought to the Ottoman ship captain, you know, asking for help against the Siamese. We have to remember that, you know, the Buddhists could also be seen, or Buddhist kingdoms could also be seen as a, an opponent. And, and it's important to know about these things too, to look at the ongoing... Um, or the extremely dangerous animosities that are stoked against Muslims, whether in modern-day Burma um, or uh, in in Lanka itself, by particular constituencies, and to point out that uh, not all monks are ironic, uh, but can in fact also be quite uh, zealous propagandists for uh, an ethnically 
an imagined ethnically pure nation. Um, but yeah, I, I would also say, and to one of my reviewers too, you know, the, the I apologize for the, the sheer number of names in the book, but I feel it's important to put the names in so that others can perhaps seize on them and say, hang on, this person was there in that group. And that's why I felt it was important not just to talk about the exile of Ahmad Rabi, but to talk about the others who were with him, like Tulba Esmet, for example, or uh, the to talk about the those people who had been tasked after their exiles as uh, prison guards who ended up being the 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 prominent assistants and servants of uh, Abdullah and then the competing um, descendants of him in terms of his, his, his religious lineage at the Cape. So there were lots of things that I took out or didn't include, but the biggest thing that I took out was, in fact, a, an entire planned section on the Cocos Islands, which is now the subject of a, another book I'm writing because um, it was just bringing us too far into the lingering colonial period and in which I want to talk about Australia as a, a practitioner of uh, a colonialism, if you like, um, even into the present. So maybe that brings me to where does it begin and end? I don't think it ends. Um, some people want to make the Indian Ocean history one of sailing connection and that everything is undone by air travel and that we have these new nodes now that have supplanted the old ones that uh, rose up. In some cases, rose up because they were deliberately constructed by the British, you know, that some places that had not been ports became ports because of de deliberate construction and destruction um, by the British, whether it was the making of the stone jetties in Zanzibar or of, uh, of, um, of one former student here, uh, spoke about in Kerala, the construction of, of uh, port facilities. So um, these are perhaps being replaced or supplanted by airline hubs, but still a huge amount of what happens historically that links these places is bound by sea. And uh, seeing the clogging of the Suez Canal um, last year sort of, I think, helped underline for everyone just how much of the world stops when these... When these uh, aquatic roots are, are sealed. But to go back to well, where did Indian Ocean history begin? Uh, I hesitate to say. I think um, it depends on whether you think that the history has to be one Indian Ocean history as world history. Then, of course, you want to sort of go back and, and think about the the eruption of the, the Portuguese into the Indian Ocean arena. But I think that the story should go much, much sooner or much, much earlier. And uh, I always like to start my classes at least um, in thinking about the, the connections between Aden and Mangalore or, or to think about the, the Chinese uh, missions into the Indian Ocean in the 15th century. So I don't know. I, I think it's all... It's all game. <laughs> it's all, it's, it's all um, of interest and, and should be the grist for the, for the mills of many, many scholars and, and amateurs and just general readers. Thank you for that answer. And if I can add to that, uh, I think also the Indian Ocean field, not just as a geography, but also a geography through which we can think about methodologies and scales and generating theory um, uh, from this field. And, and as you called your book, uh, A Temporal and Spatial Canvas, 
uh, onto which we can uh, view uh, these uh, untold stories and histories. And uh, I think the book uh, would be straddling many area studies, and I don't, and I don't still know how different historians will try to categorize this book. Uh, it doesn't sit neatly in any field, I would say. Um, and, and that's exactly what we need. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping that uh, through this podcast, um, a wide range of uh, students and scholars uh, would engage uh, with this book as a whole, not just what interests them, because I think there is, um, there is a really important intervention here, uh, which is how can we bring uh, these uh, seemingly disconnected worlds together as they were? Um, and, and I think this is, this is an exercise in doing that. So thank you so much for uh, sharing all of these insights and answering all of these questions over two hours. Uh, and as we move to, to the end of this uh, conversation that I wouldn't like to end, um, you've mentioned your work on the Caucasus Island. If you can just say a little bit more about your uh, current project and, and, and what does it entail? Yeah, well, just briefly, I... I fell onto the Cocos Islands as, again, another outpost of Malay-speaking people in the Indian Ocean world. It's the smallest of all, and um, only a, a few hundred Malay speakers uh, residing on the atoll, but having a, in this case, they do have a self-conscious Cocos diaspora in other places, in Western Australia, in Borneo, um, in, uh, in, in Singapore, Malaysia. So it's, uh, of course, Borneo, part of Malaysia, uh, the, the bit I'm thinking of. It's uh, it's a really interesting place and uh, it's got, it's the strangest story of uh, this family that effectively controls the narrative of the history of, of how the islands were settled and um, how the people worked. And I think that it's also a place of, ongoing uh, importance because of the family's connection to nearby Christmas Island or relatively nearby Christmas Island, which is, of course, the, the site of uh, not just uh, forced labour or effectively forced labour among uh, Chinese workers and digging up phosphate um, in the early part of the 20th century, but it's a, the site of one of the largest uh, internment camps run by the uh, Australians uh, to, to hold in some cases secretly, um, aspirant migrants from across the Indian Ocean world. So it's it's a story I think that's important, um, but I will probably focus in the book I'm writing now on the ways in which a family became effectively Eurasian and Malay-speaking at home, uh, but was forced to you know Europeanize itself and stand at a distance from the religion, in fact, of the majority of the islanders. Um, so you have this this idea of a, a Christian family ruling over um, Muslim subjects, but actually they're all related. Everybody's related to everybody else. And uh, it's uh, it's also a story that's of not necessarily one of complete isolation, but one finds hints here and there of uh, the use of Arabic script and the ongoing learning uh, on the islands and, uh, and connections and thinking about home being somewhere else or an origin, a place of origin and a place of origin that for some uh, ultimately went back via Cape Town. So it all connects in the, the strangest of ways. I see you keep exploring and expanding your historical horizon and we are all excited to uh, see how this unfolds. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Lavin, for joining us today and thank you 
for listening to today's episode in which we explored under empire Muslim lives and loyalties across the Indian Ocean world from 1775 to 1945, published by Columbia University Press in 2022.